Hi everyone, this is Dr. Celine Gounder. I'm the host of this show, In Sickness and in Health. If you like the stories we bring you, do me a small favor. This week, tell one friend about the podcast. Just one. Not a big ask, right? It'll help us bring you more stories on the big health issues of the day. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. The work that I've been part of is built on resetting relationships with communities at large, making it very clear even to high-risk folks on the street that their safety is of absolute central importance. Alive and free is the phrase a lot of us use. We want people alive, unhurt, and in the community, not dead or wounded or in jail. Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. In our last episode, we talked with criminologist David Kennedy about the ceasefire model for violence reduction. It's about identifying the small, high-risk groups of people responsible for most of the violence. It's about telling them the consequences for their actions and giving them the resources to change. Cities throughout the country are grappling with how to address the gun violence on their streets. Many have turned to David's ceasefire program as a possible solution. In this episode, we look at the experience of two different cities, Oakland and New Orleans, and see how each of them adapted ceasefire to their cities with varying results. Prior to coming to California and founding this organization in 2012 with my uh, partners at the California Partnership, I worked with David Kennedy at the National Network for Safe Communities, uh, actually launching and developing the National Network out of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. This is Vaughn Crandall. He's now the co-director of the California Partnership for Safe Communities and has been involved in violence prevention for a long time. The California Partnership for Safe Communities, or CPSC, is a nonprofit consulting group based out of Oakland. As Vaughn puts it, they work with cities. To advance a public safety triple bottom line, and that is to reduce gun violence on a community level, to also improve outcomes and reduce recidivism for young people at the very highest risk of being involved in violence, and to build police community trust. The ceasefire model has seen a lot of success, but Vaughn and his team noticed cities often face significant challenges in their implementation. They'd often see significant reductions in violence in the near term, but they had a hard time keeping that momentum going beyond two or three years, especially beyond five years. Vaughn also wondered, how much does ceasefire make the situation better for young people versus just bringing about more arrests? Vaughn and his team at CPSC looked for a place where they could take ceasefire to the next level. In the cities of Oakland Stockton, what we saw was two cities that were desperate enough and had enough of a political alignment and enough of a senior leadership commitment to give this thing the kind of long-term investment that we thought it was going to take to realize its full potential. To explain why, we've got to go back to what was happening in Oakland in the early 2000s, well before CPSC got involved. Oakland had long been struggling with violent crime. And then, between 1999 and 2003, 
the city experienced an 81% increase in homicides. There was this all kind of stuff going on in Oakland at the time. Um, murder rate was really high. And so that's when we started talking about, um, you know, that there's a sickness in this city and it needs a healing. This is Barbara Lafitte Uluwole. She's a mother organizer and bedrock of the West Oakland community. Just to let you know, this is from like a personal perspective. So this is just like my story because I am on staff with Oakland Community Organizations, but the majority of the work I did was as a leader with the organization, a community leader. Barbara was tapped through her church to help organize members of her community. And over the years, she's become more and more involved in local issues. My beginning with Oakland Community Organizations as a leader started before my son's uh, murder in um, 2003. In 2002, her son's best friend was shot. Her son was there when it happened and agreed to testify against the suspects. The following year, before he could testify, her son was shot and killed. The police never identified his murderer. After her son's death, Barbara and her husband became more and more involved in community organizing. Barbara joined a local organizing committee in the Lower Bottom neighborhood in West Oakland. We actually worked on violence prevention. That was the issue that came up mostly for the majority of us who live in that area. Oakland residents agreed that something had to be done to address the escalating violence. In 2004, to raise the money for anti-violence efforts, the city proposed the Violence Prevention and Public Safety Act, known as Measure Y. At first, the plan was to hire 100 new cops for the Oakland Police Department. But many community organizers, including Barbara, disagreed. They believed that a strategy based solely on law enforcement wouldn't work. This wouldn't address the root causes of violence, they thought, and they pushed back. We asked them to put money towards at-risk youth and probationers, parolees, so that there will be programs for them when they come out of jail, that they are not going back to the same lifestyle because they don't have anything better to do. And also have uh, community police officers walking the beat and getting to know the community. After a lot of advocacy, city officials changed their proposal so that if passed, 60% of the funds would go to law enforcement and 40% for social services. With these changes in place, Barbara and others threw their support behind it. They canvassed the neighborhood and organized phone banking and voter registration drives. Their efforts paid off, and in the end, voters approved Measure Y, $20 million in funding over 10 years. This was a big win. Under Measure Y, the city of Oakland began implementing an anti-violence strategy that included both law enforcement and social services, but... The programs were not working very well. Measure Y allocated funding for the Oakland Police Department to hire what it called problem-solving officers to do community policing. The problem with problem-solving officers was nobody knew exactly what they were supposed to do. What problems should they be solving? What exactly is community policing? Measure Y provided little guidance. Two years after Measure Y was passed, the department had only hired half the number of problem-solving officers they were supposed to. There were also problems with the social services side of the strategy. 
Programs funded under Measure Y included diversion and reentry services for formerly incarcerated people, as well as employment and training services. But much of what Measure Y was funding was directed at youth, mostly because it was a commonly held belief at the time that juveniles were the primary drivers of serious violence in the city. In the meantime, violence continued to rise in Oakland. By the end of 2006, there were 146 homicides in the city, marking a 10-year peak. Barbara and others continued to search for solutions. One day, community organizers came across the ceasefire model. They were impressed by how the anti-violence strategy helped turn around record levels of homicide in Boston during the 1990s and had worked well in other cities. We learned about the um, strategies that David Kennedy and those guys were using and the Boston miracle, and there was a call-in in High Point, North Carolina, that we saw a video on, and we were really intrigued by that. And so we said if we could do something like that here. They wasted no time and began meeting with city leaders and public officials, urging them to bring ceasefire to Oakland. In 2007, a new mayor came into office, and Oakland agreed to launch a homegrown version of ceasefire. In 2009, after years of planning, the city and the police department agreed to hold their first call-in meeting. It wasn't very successful. There were only maybe two or three young men there. I can't remember exactly how many men were there. They were expecting at least 20. But this low turnout wasn't the only problem. There wasn't a strong community presence at the meeting. In fact, most of the people there were law enforcement officers which isn't exactly the ceasefire way. Many community and faith-based organizers saw this as a sign that city and law enforcement leaders weren't fully committed to the ceasefire model. They didn't understand the range of partners, especially community partners, they needed to bring to the table to be successful. So once again, community activists organized, this time to demand that public officials implement a revamped ceasefire operation. And they educated themselves. When we brought the guys from the Boston model here and they found out about Measure Y that we already had funds, they said, oh, well, you know, you're really starting with a lot more than we had when we started. You have an upper hand in this already. Encouraged, they continued their efforts to create community and political support, working with congregations all over the city and setting up countless meetings with public officials. They even bust hundreds of citizens to a city council meeting, shutting it down, demanding a better version of ceasefire. With the election of a new mayor, Jan Kwan, and a new police chief, the political climate finally changed. A year later in 2012, the Oakland City Council's Public Safety Committee, the chief of police, and the mayor's office publicly acknowledged that the city's earlier efforts to implement ceasefire had been inadequate. The city and the police department pledged they would do better. Once again, the efforts of community and faith-based organizers had paid off. People often have ideas that are understandable, but just fundamentally wrong. That's Von Crandall again, from the California Partnership for Safe Community. CPSC partnered with Oakland in 2012, and one of the first things they did was to analyze what was driving the violence in Oakland. They looked at 170 homicides over a year and a half to understand where the violence was concentrated and what was driving it. And at the time, the narrative in the public agencies, including the police department and in the community and at the political level was, our violence problem is driven by drug dealing and youth, i.e. people under the age of 18. 
it turned out that that was almost completely wrong. What CPSC found instead was that fewer than 10% of all of those homicides had anyone as a victim or suspect who was under the age of 18, and fewer than 10% had any connection to drug dealing. Sometimes drugs were involved in violent incidents, but more often than not, the violence wasn't over drugs. The initial shooting might have been tied to a drug trade, but they're going to have seven, eight, nine, ten shootings that will follow that initial shooting that are not about the drugs. That has evolved into a running conflict between two groups of people that now are just caught in this thing that they can't get out of. CPSC also found that the number of people engaging in violence at risk of being victims or perpetrators was much smaller than had been thought. In Oakland, there were approximately 50 violent groups or gangs with an active membership of between 1,000 and 1,200 people, so about 0.3% of the population. And only a small subset of them were at high risk for engaging in serious violence at any given time. 90% of your violence problem doesn't fit the public narrative. Once the problem had been correctly identified, a revamped ceasefire could be shaped to address it. The first call-in after these changes took place in October 2012. The Oakland version of the call-ins, Vaughn explains, is led by the community. The community where those at high risk for perpetrating violence are from, the community where those at high risk for being the victims of violence live. And they essentially say, we're here because we have good reason to believe that you or those that you are close to at are at imminent risk of being shot or shooting somebody. And we don't want that for you. We don't want that for our community. Many of us here have been directly impacted by the issue of violence in this city, and we need your help in order to change this. They have community speakers, often a shooting victim, the parent of a murder victim, or a trauma nurse from one of the local hospitals, talk about the impact of gun violence on their lives. Law enforcement officers also explain the consequences if they're involved in a violent crime. They just walk through and say, look guys, just want you to understand, just so you're informed, the risks that you and those you were close to take if you pick up a gun and use it to shoot somebody, to rob somebody. This is the kind of exposure that you face in the state system and in the federal system. And here's some other things about the federal system you might not know, but that you should know. The call-ins were a key piece. They emphasized clear, direct communication with the highest risk individuals, but also showed how the community at large was affected and cared. Vaughn's team at CPSC, all their in-depth analysis, helped the city of Oakland realize they'd been targeting their social services at the wrong people. Instead of focusing so much on youth and school programs, they needed to target the people driving the violence now, older men who'd already had a lot of run-ins with the criminal justice system. At-risk junior high school kids deserve support and they deserve, you know, a life of opportunity. But the thing is, they're not the ones who are at risk of shooting somebody or getting shot this year. Measure Y allowed the city to identify community partners and social service providers that address the root causes of violence, like untreated trauma and the absence of economic and educational opportunities. Now, with a better understanding of who the high-risk individuals were, Oakland restructured its social services program, funding fewer programs more generously. In 2014, 10 years of Measure Y was coming to an end, and Measure Z was put on the ballot to renew and improve on it. Measure Z kept the same 60-40 funding split between law enforcement and social services, but focused the social services on those older men who'd been in and out of the justice system and were most likely to be involved in the violence. 
activists and organizers had to, once again, make the case for those social services. But Measure Z eventually passed with overwhelming support. 77% of Oakland residents voted in favor of extending the tax, which would provide $27 million over the next 10 years. Since Measure Z was passed, Oakland has seen non-fatal shootings drop with every single year. CPSC also helped refine the law enforcement side of Oakland's ceasefire strategy. Previously under Measure Y, the Oakland Police Department was focused on drug-related crimes and medium-risk young people. It seemed like they were measuring success by the number of arrests made, not reductions in homicide. The tactics police agencies have tended to use in that engagement are very aggressive, zero-tolerance, high-arrest strategies. And those both, I think, contribute to the incarceration of low- and moderate-risk people with little to no public safety benefit and a lot of harm. A lot of damage to police-community relations, which had not been great in Oakland to begin with. The way CPSC sees it, the less people trust the police department, the more they handle things on their own, the more violence that creates. If we can flip that trust with the right guys in this network gets us, at the minimum, a couple of guys to stand down when they might otherwise pick up a gun. And even more than that, occasionally helps us get some information that helps us save a life here and there. Under Oakland Ceasefire 2.0, the Oakland PD created a ceasefire section, dedicated units focused on addressing and solving violent crime, especially shootings and homicides, and working with the highest risk individuals. But this wasn't just about addressing crime. It was also about rebuilding the community's trust. So officers from the ceasefire units, along with the department as a whole, receive special training on procedural justice. We found to be successful is really to appeal to officers' self-interest and experience, which is to say to them, you have, at this point, probably seen a lot of really bad things in your career, right? You've just been exposed to a lot of really human misery and suffering. And you've also probably been in a number of situations where communities and community members who you're trying to help are really angry at you, and you may not understand why that happens. And so part of what we want to do is give you a set of tools that will help you manage your interactions with the community in a way that will be better for the community, that will be making what we've called trust deposits instead of trust withdrawals, and that will help you to be safer, to be less stressed, to get more information and to be more effective. They also taught them about the history of police brutality against communities of color in Oakland. And the surprising thing is, you know, officers, even those who've been working for a while, they don't necessarily know that stuff, particularly if they're not from Oakland, and many aren't. You know, that's history that they just don't know. And so part of it is it's, it's difficult, I think, for them to interpret and understand the response of community members in East and West Oakland and the Fruitvale if they don't have that context. Something unique about these trainings, they were co-taught by members of the community. At first, Vaughn says, the Oakland PD was hesitant. But as it turned out... That was one of the aspects that all of the officers uniformly said, this was one of the best pieces of this class, and we want more of it because it was a way that we could engage with you know, the community in an authentic way around these issues, but we don't have this, there's no constructive space for us to actually work on them together. But as Vaughn points out, training alone isn't enough. The training in the classroom prepares people with a basic awareness of these concepts. But I think the work to be done is to take that into the field. 
What Oakland Ceasefire also did is it established a framework for supervisors to evaluate officers in the field, whether or not they were applying the concepts discussed in the classroom with real-life citizens. Does my sergeant have a clear protocol and management framework for the application of procedural justice in the context of the duties and scenarios that I will encounter? And are they evaluating my use of procedural justice in the context of my encounters with citizens in the community? And is that evaluation taken into account when I am promoted or disciplined or given feedback? The internal restructuring, says Vaughn, was key to making the law enforcement strategy more effective. Another improvement in Oakland Ceasefire was all the meetings. We usually think of meetings as a waste of time, something that gets in the way of the real work, but these actually work. One meeting was to set up a constant feedback loop by reviewing the shootings each week. We didn't invent this. We borrowed some stuff from Boston and Cincinnati and some other performance management work that we'd done and kind of developed a next version of it in Oakland and Stockton. Shooting reviews are meetings where the police department gets together to talk through all the shootings that have taken place in the last week or two. They look for patterns to keep on top of shifting dynamics on the streets and adjust their tactics accordingly. Shooting reviews give officers the opportunity to analyze the data, update it, and adjust their approach in real time. Okay, maybe our violence dynamic has changed, but what is it now? It's still gonna be hyper-concentrated because that's just how it works. And so what is it now, and how do we act on it now? And if our strategy needs to evolve to track the reality of what our problem is now, then that's fine, but that's the work. In addition to shooting reviews, there are coordination meetings between law enforcement and social service partners to make sure that those at risk or who've recently been involved in violence receive timely services. The things that we'll tend to talk about is, okay, we had 15 shootings this week, right? 10 of them were hits, five of them were not, two of them were fatal. And we'll say, okay, What's going on with the funeral arrangements around the fatal shootings? Here's what we know about the likelihood of retaliation. Here's what we know about possible people who are co connected into this. Um, let's say on the non-fatal shootings, we're going to say, okay, where is this person? Are they still in the hospital? Um, have they had follow-up from a violence interrupter or a uh, hospital-based response worker? Are there other things given the violence dynamic that they're connected to that we should be doing in the near term that are gonna help prevent retaliation? We need to be able to directly engage with people and essentially convince them that it's not worth shooting somebody. City leaders and partners agreed from the beginning that Oakland ceasefire should aim to reduce shootings and homicides by 10% each year. Performance reviews led by the mayor hold people accountable. And there needs to be a mechanism by which people are held accountable to each other for delivering on their piece of work. And then together we need to be able to look and say, is this type of work at this scale reducing shootings at a community level? And if it's not, what do we need to change? What do we do, need to do more or less of? What do we need to problem solve around? These performance reviews, Vaughn says, where everyone knows there's a meeting coming up, where their data is tallied and made public, is key to keeping folks focused on the work. In 2018, there were 68 killings in Oakland, the city's lowest in nearly two decades, and almost 50% less than six years before. We did all of this stuff together. It helped both of us, you know, forgive the person that killed our son and also to accept our son's death. I know I still see my husband's 
teeth clench. His tradition, he's a Yoruba, he's from Nigeria. They don't bury their children. The parents don't attend the funeral services. We didn't go to the funeral home, we didn't go to the mass, we didn't go to the grave site. And we've never been because they don't feel that parents should bury their children. Children should bury their parents. For Barbara, like thousands of community members in Oakland who'd been living with the threat of gun violence, the drop in homicides has been a big win. I'm very hopeful. I feel things are changing every day. The story of ceasefire in Oakland may have ripple effects far beyond the city limits. It's caught the attention of national gun violence advocates. A lot of engagement and action on the issue of gun violence up until now has been focused around mass shootings. That's Mike McLively, an attorney at the Giffords Law Center. The Giffords Law Center is a national gun violence prevention organization named after Congresswoman Giffords, who was shot in 2011. I spoke with Mike about a report Giffords published earlier this year highlighting the anti-violence efforts in Oakland. According to Mike, a lot of the gun violence prevention work at the national level. Uh, the work was focused very much on, uh, you know, solutions to gun violence that had to do with regulating guns. Universal background checks, regulating access to military-style weapons, that kind of thing. The problem, Mike says, is that many states have preemption laws that forbid cities within those states from regulating guns. I think there are some advocates who see that and say, well, then there's not much we can do at the local level to address gun violence. But Mike believes one of the lessons from the Oakland experience is that... That there are actually some amazingly effective solutions out there. There's a real concrete sort of action plan they can follow to make sure that their leaders know about these solutions. And, you know, things like preemption laws or the Second Amendment, you know, these strategies have nothing to do with regulating guns. Because they're not about gun regulation, programs like Ceasefire cleverly sidestep contentious debates over the Second Amendment, which means cities still have tools to combat violence at the local level without running afoul of state preemption laws. It also means local advocates may be able to muster political support for programs like Ceasefire from both the left and the right, since these solutions have nothing to do with gun rights. They have to do with engaging with people at highest risk of being involved with violence. And so really, it's just an issue of of resources, committing resources to the right strategies and building up political support. Of course, as we'll see, all of this is much easier said than done. NOLA for Life was very much associated with the former mayoral administration. And so a new mayor uh, took office uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, early May. This is Charles West. I spoke with him last spring. Charles was director of innovation with the mayor's office in New Orleans. His job was to design and implement NOLA for Life, Mayor Mitch Landrieu's signature homicide reduction strategy. Under the that umbrella and branding, uh, it no longer exists, even though some of the components still exist. When Charles joined the innovation team in 2011, he began by pulling together everything the city knew about the shootings and murders in New Orleans. What did you learn? What did you find with that exercise? Um, I think by and large, we found trends that were consistent with uh, a lot of other urban areas, which is that both shootings and murders were concentrated in uh, a few areas of the city. 
New Orleans has long struggled with a very high murder rate, about 10 times the national average. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina devastated the city. Homicides went up in the two years after the hurricane, what some experts think is related to upheaval in the drug market after the storm. Fewer people living in the city, due to evacuations and deaths, met fewer customers. Dealers had to relocate, and new dealers entered the market, which meant jockeying for turf. The end result? More violence and murders. To make matters worse, the New Orleans PD had fewer officers to police the streets after Katrina. That and recession-era budget cuts meant even less manpower for the New Orleans PD, which was already struggling to ensure public safety. Like the city of Oakland, New Orleans looked to ceasefire, as well as Gary Slutkin's Cure Violence program for ideas, which we talked about in episode 16, and they focused on the people at highest risk for violence. The group violence reduction strategy within NOLA for Life is his model. It is, you know, we started with the call-ins, and we established the multi-agency gang unit based on some interest from the U.S. Attorney's Office and the District Attorney's Office. New Orleans organized ceasefire-style call-ins with at-risk individuals. They had a dedicated unit focused on gang violence. They had cure violence like street outreach workers and violence interrupters who went out and tried to resolve conflicts before they escalated. The data Charles and his team were looking at also confirmed that the most violent neighborhoods, not surprisingly, also had high levels of poverty and unemployment. We found that often those hotspot areas had higher incidences of many of the other social determinants of health, but we also found, you know, higher incidences of uh, poor health outcomes, of, you know, low birth weight babies, of chronic disease, of all the other sorts of things that you tend to associate with neighborhoods of concentrated poverty uh, and often disinvestment. And so how did that shape the strategy? The biggest thing is that it told us that the strategy had to be comprehensive. We had to be addressing multiple conditions at multiple levels all at once. And that's why NOLA for Life was so comprehensive. But it was also, at times, confusing. But when you look at our original, our original strategy, I think there was a lot of misunderstanding. I think still to today, there's misunderstanding about like, well, what is NOLA for Life? Because there are people who like worked within it who would say that it was really just group and gang violence strategy, which is inaccurate. There are people who only knew it as ceasefire or, you know, cure violence. Uh, there are people who said, oh, well, it's this, it's this midnight basketball thing. There are people who know it as the youth violence work. And it was all about, you know, school environments. The truth is it was all those things uh, and others, but that it did indeed, from the standpoint of um, communication, make it a lot more difficult. Like the first iteration of ceasefire in Oakland, NOLA for Life offered social services to the youth and families thought to be at highest risk. Recreational programs like midnight basketball and summer camps, mentoring, family violence prevention, and behavioral health services. NOLA for Life was looking beyond those directly involved in the violence to broader social issues like poverty and unemployment. 
51% of African Americans in New Orleans are unemployed, so a key piece was getting people jobs, especially those hardest to employ, like the formerly incarcerated. So for instance, there is a new airport that was going to be built. So we worked with some of the contractors in the city to say, okay, what would it mean for someone to be ready to step into one of the jobs that you'll be hiring for at the airport? And we worked with a local community college to create exactly that curriculum to start it early enough that when it was time to start hiring, there were people who were participating in some of our NOLA for Life programs and others who were then ready to step into those jobs. Yet, for all its scope and ambition, NOLA for Life had mixed results. In 2013, one year after it launched, more than eight violent groups had been identified and 100 people indicted. But the homicide and violent crime rates barely budged, and then murders went up again. In 2016 and 2017, more people were shot and killed in New Orleans than in the year before NOLA for Life started. Today, New Orleans remains one of the top 10 cities with the highest murder rates in the country. You know, looking at the the homicide rates in New Orleans, you see a, a decrease, but then you see an increase more recently. How, how do you explain that more recent increase? If you look at, for instance, the rate of call-ins as sort of an indication of the uh, fidelity of the implementation of at least the enforcement part portion of NOLA for Life is you see far fewer. And there are people who have said, oh, but, you know, the model doesn't work after a couple of years. I would say that the biggest determinant of the success of NOLA for Life was a combination of, like, fidelity and resources being sustained over time. Understanding the shifting dynamics of street violence can be challenging. That's why in Oakland, they conduct shooting reviews every week or two to keep their finger on the pulse. The way the data is analyzed in New Orleans just isn't granular enough to help officers stay on top of the landscape of street violence, to help them track who's at highest risk for committing or being the victim of violence from day to day. That level of detail is important if you want to target your efforts at the right people. I I think, especially when it comes to like the group and gang members, that yeah, I think some people's perception is that, I mean, it's a small number of people. And so you just need to, you know, like you just need to go get that small number of people. When it comes to groups and gangs, there's sort of a constant churn of sort of members and jockeying for power and groups, you know, forming and breaking apart and all the rest. It's just sort of a constant changing environment and constant changing dynamics that you have to stay on top of. While it might be a small group driving the violence at any given time, who's in that group changes. Charles thinks NOLA for Life would have been a lot more successful if the public and city leaders had understood that it wasn't a quick fix, that resources would be needed for the long haul. And this was a challenge as new officials were elected and policies shifted. Oakland versus New Orleans. In one city, ceasefire has worked wonders, and in the other, it hasn't. Success or not has less to do with the strategy itself and more to do with how it's carried out. Do we know who's most likely to be involved in the violence today? 
not just yesterday or a year ago? Are we calling in the right people and offering them the right services? And is there ongoing political commitment and funding for all of this? The community has a lot to do with it. Oakland community members are really our role models, I think, for folks in other cities in terms of their tenacity. Mike McLively again from the Giffords Law Center. This took several years, but they never gave up their bold advocacy, right? That they were saying, we're not taking no for an answer. And really their commitment to this over time. So once it was put in place, continuing to meet with new leaders to say, you know, this is our city's strategy. This is what the community wants. It really illustrates that there is a lot that activists can do at the local level when it comes to gun violence prevention. Oakland citizens held public officials and law enforcement accountable. And that was crucial, which means there's hope where there's the will, there is a way. In our next episode, we'll take a deeper look into the softer side in the battle against gun violence. Did you find that it was more difficult to get funding for the social service pieces? Yes, it, you know, social services, especially for a high-risk population, the case management alone tends to be more intensive and thus, you know, often more resource intensive. It's often a lot easier to make the case for a law and order response to violence, but social services are a tougher sell. So what's the evidence for these approaches? There's hard evidence. That's next time on In Sickness and In Health. Today's episode of In Sickness and In Health was produced by Virginia Laura and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and In Health.